Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hey, everyone. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to give a little disclaimer. This episode is a bit uh, sensitive, um, and we cover so many taboo topics of human nature. I find it absolutely fascinating, but I do suggest that people read a list of the topics that we're going to cover before they listen to today's episode, as some of the topics may uh, be, uh, upsetting to some people. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, begin the episode. Today, it's great to have Dr. Julia Shaw on the podcast. Dr. Shaw is a psychological scientist. She is best known for her work in the areas of memory and criminal psychology. In 2017, Dr. Shaw co-founded the memory science and artificial intelligence startup called Spot. SPOT helps employees report workplace harassment and discrimination and empowers organizations to build a more inclusive and respectful work environment. In 2016, she published her best-selling debut book, The Memory Illusion, which has appeared in 20 languages. And in 2019, she published her second international bestseller called Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. So great to chat with you today, Dr. Julia Shaw. Wonderful to be here. We're trying all sorts of new things right now, so I hope backups and backups. I hope this works. I hope the video comes out. So, you know, let's explore the dark side of human nature today. Uh, Sure. Why not, right? Yeah. One of my favorite topics. Yes, it's one of my favorite topics, too. I really love how you approach the topic. It's very sensitive. It's very human. And that's something you really don't see a lot in discussions of quote, evil, there is this human tendency for us to want to separate the other bad person from ourselves so much. 
yet we still get all this enjoyment from watching like horror movies. Well, some people, no, I guess not everyone does, but some people, I love horror movies. Do you like horror movies? I do like horror movies. I was just uh, curious. No, I don't like horror, but I do like psychological horror movies. Yeah. So how do you get interested in this topic? I got interested in evil, well, criminal psychology more specifically. When I was looking, so taking it a couple steps back, actually, my dad is a paranoid schizophrenic. So since I was little, I realized that some people have a very different reality than others. And this is why I became interested in psychology. And uh, along the way, I discovered philosophy and had a real sort of took a real interest in that as well. And uh, once I sort of dove into the world of psychology, I decided that the most good, in my view, could come from doing or working with groups of people who not only are potentially harmful to themselves, but also to others. Uh, and that's where I landed with offenders. And the, the biggest question for me always was, why do good, in quotes, slash boring people do terrible things? And I think this is something that is deeply, deeply fascinating also about sort of me as an individual, you as an individual, uh, people who we know have already, you know, committed atrocity. How, how do you get from us to, to there? And I think the evidence clearly suggests that you can and that it's probably easier than you'd like it to be. Yeah, for sure. And did you like, I'm so I'm wary of asking you too many personal questions, but did you ever through your life see some comment? If you, if I ask anything as you don't feel comfortable answering it, of course, please let me know. Of course. Uh, of course. Did you see any common characteristics by looking at your father that kind of like maybe at first scared you or like made you like be like, oh my gosh, got to cordon that off from my consciousness? Well, what's fascinating about schizophrenia is that you build, especially when it's combined with paranoia, is that you see evil or stalkers everywhere. And so, you know, it can be a checkout clerk at a grocery store. It can be a family member. It can be someone who's calling, you know, those annoying people who call your phone to see, you know, to sell you stuff. Um, They're all in on it. And it must be a deeply distressing way to live, frankly. Um, and, And in that moment, what you're doing is you're basically making out as if all these people are out to hurt you and that they're, if you will, even evil or part of some conspiracy um, of which, and this is the narcissism piece of it, right? Of which you are the center. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but still, I, it, it definitely, it, it shows you how one person can, can look at anyone basically and see darkness, even though other people around them don't see that. And I think that that sort of reality crafting is really fascinating and we all do it to some extent. So fascinating. We we really do do it. We so easily say, "Oh, that person's such a narcissist," or you know. Um, uh, he says after he moves her hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's usually we say that about we usually say that about our exes. <laughs> I think like everyone. Yeah. What do you, what do you say? Yeah, every, everyone has a psychopathic or narcissistic ex yeah, yeah. In, in their heads. So by the way, for people who are, can't see the video right now, who are listening to the podcast, I've put on a leather jacket today for this chat because I'm trying to look uh, edgy. So anyway, I just wanted to. <laughs> that's, that's what edgy people look like. They wear yeah, leather jackets. Yeah, yeah, that's what they do. That's what they edgy do. Edgy people in the 60s. <laughs> yes. Well, I was born in the wrong era. To be honest, I really do feel like I would have been like in Shanana. Uh, that's a reference no one knows about. But there was a character yeah. in Shanana called Bowser, who was like he always wore the leather jacket, black hair. He always had a really deep voice. He'd be like da 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 da. Anyway, was he the inspiration for the Mario Kart Bowser? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I don't. Uh, I've never also contemplated that. Maybe, oh. maybe you said a badass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you. I was like, I was like, also. (laughs) Did you say also, (laughs) or like also like Bowser, the other Bowser? Anyway, like all of us. Okay, cool. Moving on from that. So you say 
I mean, you point out a lot about human hypocrisy in your book. And it really got me. It really, it really just got me. Yeah, I mean, the book blew my mind. You know, I'm like, you're right. Like, was that your intention to like completely turn people's normal uh, assumptions on its head? <laughs> that was the idea. I, yeah. I like challenging people's ideas about themselves in the world. Um, and that was definitely, and I also tried to in evil put things that are less predictable into it. So there's definitely some thought experiments and some topics that don't seem to feature much in other books on evil or related books. And so that was the point was to sort of like cute aggression, like wanting to hurt your pet. Like that doesn't feature in books on evil typically. Um, but I think it's most fascinating when we see sort of everyday experiences and we link them to more catastrophic, you know, harmful behavior. And you look at what the underpinning sort of commonality is between those things. And that I think is among the most fascinating when you look at this research is there are so many commonalities and the reasons we do harm and the reasons we do what you might call evil are the same reasons that we do basically, you know, all kinds of other things. And so it's such a fundamental part of being human to act badly. Um, and then the question is just how do we, how do we reduce the amount that we act badly and how do we reduce our hypocrisies? Because we don't even act in line with our own morality, which I always find fascinating. So there's this, I sometimes get accused of being a, a moral relativist, which I don't think I am, but I definitely see that subjectivity matters because everybody thinks that their morality is the right one. And I think that's a really important thing to remember at all times. On the other hand, um, you know, the, the question becomes like, are you even living up to your own moral standards? And, and the answer is most of us aren't. And so how do we change that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Now, you're not a big fan of calling people evil. No. Um, and I know you're not. Uh, and you've made that point clear. How do you reconcile that with... Um, the existence of individual differences in certain personality traits. Would you just say that these are all just dispositions that are on offer through the course of human evolution and that there's no objective, you know, these are just judgments we put on these behaviors in a different context. They could be something else. Like, do you have any like boundaries at all <laughs> in terms of what you're willing to not call evil or call evil? I guess that's what I'm asking. <laughs> So for me, evil is a term that we use to other people. Evil is something that we usually don't use to describe ourselves uh, unless we're sort of, you know, we use it in almost jokingly in very lighthearted settings. Like, oh, I'm evil. I'm eating a chocolate cake. You know, instead of one being naughty, which is obviously not what we're talking about. I just had a chocolate, a chocolate bar before I, I talked to you. Uh, evil. Yeah. Um, but in sort of in reality, we don't really use that term in the way that it's, you know, meant to be used uh, to describe ourselves. We use it and, and we don't just use it to describe friends and family either. We might, even if they've acted abhorrently, we will say that they've, you know, they have done a thing. They have, you know, stolen something or, or killed somebody even, but we won't say that they're evil necessarily or almost never. Um, so evil is this word that we seem to reserve for people who we want to dehumanize and who we want to set out as these monsters who potentially can't be changed, who are maybe born that way. And, and that's what bothers me is that I don't think that exists. I don't think you're born evil. And so... The very word itself, as soon as you're using it, it's cop out, it's lazy. What you've done is you've said, I'm going to you know, distill everything that this person has done or, and thinks and feels into this one word. And it's so different for me that I don't even need to try and understand it. Sure. I definitely get that point. But there's individual differences in some of these neurological associations with certain behaviors that people tend to label as more evil than others. So can we talk about some of the, first of all, let's talk about the neuroscience of evil, you know, like, tell, tell me, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me, tell me, by the way, I was expecting you to have a British accent. Are you? Yes. <laughs> Darn well, you, I do live in London. You live in London, right? 
I do, I, yeah. I don't I know why I thought you were English for some reason. I think, no. well, it's because you live in London. Yeah, presumably. <laughs> yeah. Where are you cute. from? I wish I had a British accent. Where are you from? I'm from Canada. Oh, Canada. You're, so, you're, so you're Canadian. I'm half uh, Canadian, half German. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, with that interlude out of the way. Because <laughs> I really did, ex- I was expecting a British accent. Okay, I'm not like disappointed. I'm just... <laughs> just saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm not disappointed. But okay. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about this, the neuroscience of, of evil. And then I thought like we could talk about that basic structure and then link it to the your brain on porn. I thought I thought we could link those two things together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. sure. I mean, in terms of the neuroscience, so in the book I do a thought experiment, which is where I reconstruct Hitler's brain. Now, of course, that's impossible in terms of reality because he killed himself and we don't have his brain but you know if we were to what would it potentially look like like are there is there something in in his brain that made him the man he became and basically going through sort of you know, sort of the, the questions around mental health mental illness you know was he ever diagnosed with a mental mental illness not really is the answer so it's probably nothing related to that was it narcissism probably a little bit um was he a psychopath probably not um really? so i mean there's all these well, probably, there's lots of argument, but probably not. He if if Hitler wasn't a psychopath, don't we need to reassess our definition of psychopaths? Well, psychopath. I mean, we should, we do need to reassess our definition of psychopaths. So that's a that's a whole other conversation. I think okay. it's easy to assume that people who do terrible things are psychopaths, yeah. but um, actually, when we look at history, especially I think leaders who do seem to be at least partially politically driven and potentially egocentric. So they're sort of out for themselves, but that doesn't make them psychopaths. I mean, those are still different things, right? But yeah, so so breaking down sort of what Hitler's brain could have looked like. Basically, as far as I could tell, there's nothing specifically about his personality or about him as a person that should make us be able to identify, let's say, my brain next to his brain. Like you wouldn't, I don't think you'd be able to tell the difference. Mm. And I think that's really important to to think about in terms of, you know, we sort of assume that there's sort of this E factor somewhere. I, I read a paper once called the E factor, and I, I couldn't tell if it was tongue in cheek or not. But obviously, there's no such thing as an E factor, the evil factor. Uh, there's no E gene. Are you talking about the dark core of personality? Well, there's a, there's a dark tetrad and a dark triad, which is also... A dramatic way of describing yeah. a cluster of personality traits. That's true. That's but yeah, the, the sort of factor E was, was discussed. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is like probably when we look at the brains of murderers more generally, there do seem to be some differences between psychopathic murderers and just normal murderers uh, in terms of their brain structures. And so you can see some differences in the amygdala, so where empathy is created or is among other things created. You can see some differences in the prefrontal cortex or where decision-making happens. But these are also offenders who have been caught. So these are psychopaths who are also murderers. So that's a specific category. And so there does seem to be a correlation with brain structures there, but it's not reliable enough that you could ever just peer into someone's brain and say, oh, this person's going to become a, you know, a terrible person. It's so interesting. So become a terrible person, but there are things that will make it more likely that you'll have certain behaviors. Surely, surely you're not saying there's no connection between the brain and behavior. <laughs> there is, of course. But I think that the idea that we could either use it to, so some brain scans to filter out people who might be at risk or Predict. to, after the facts, sort of excuse behavior. So this is the idea of sort of putting brain scans into court cases and saying, well, this person was a psychopath. They, they had to kill, mm. which, of course, also is ridiculous. Um, it's just not that simple, the connection between brain and behavior, right? 
So it's in terms of structures, not obviously the brain causes all behavior, but in terms of, you know, looking at specific things and predispositions, they don't necessarily result in bad behavior. So interesting because people try to use the the brain to predict intelligence levels, you know, or I mean, it's like anything else. People try to to use uh, now machine learning algorithms to try to predict, you know, how does the brain, can we predict creativity, you know, my field or genius. Yeah. It, it seems like predicting genius is probably as elusive as predicting evil in the brain. What do you say? Yeah, or, or people predicting good behavior is as elusive as predicting bad behavior. So so being a normal laureate probably also can't generally see if someone's going to apply, even if they are intelligent, if they're going to apply in ways that we consider good. So, I mean, it's, this isn't to undersell the fact that there are predispositions in the brain that make it more likely you're going to make what society generally considers bad decisions. So having damage to your prefrontal cortex, again, back to that sort of you are going to make worse decisions. And so that might include, you know, letting a fight get out of control and, you know, attempting grievous bodily harm and in the process murdering them. So, I mean, that's more likely to happen if you're less able to manage your emotions, if you're less able to make good decisions. And that is something that from small on you are, you you can be predisposed to be. So, but it doesn't mean that you're going to engage in necessarily in bad decisions in the way that we would consider evil. Does that make sense? It so does. much nuance. <laughs> it does make sense. I, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate nuance. I really do. And I appreciate the, the nuance you put into this book. I was thinking about linking this a little bit to what excessive porn viewing seems to do the brain and then the difference between correlation and causation. Sure. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you have a whole section on pornography and you really do add the nuance there. And I know this is a hot topic. But yeah, let's talk a little about what is the what does the latest uh, research say on uh, whether or not pornography makes you evil? Uh, so the link between pornography, pornography was a fascinating thing to research. So when you write a book or the, when I write books, at least, I don't like knowing exactly what the outcome of my book is going to be. In other words, so when I was writing, when I started telling people that I was writing a book on evil, people kept asking me right from the beginning, so, you know, what's the main, what's the take-home message? And I I went in sort of saying, you know, I want to examine the the humanity behind people who do terrible things. I want to make, like, try and look for it everywhere, so not be dissuaded just because someone's done something terrible. I'm going to just try my best to look for the humanity and look for the reasons why, rather than just saying this person's a monster, because that's too easy. And so that I knew, but I didn't know what sort of the pathway would be and which research I would end up really, like, getting stuck in in the process. And porn, the research on porn, I found fascinating because it's a place where it seems many researchers automatically assume that porn is bad. And there's no good reason to assume that. It's, I think this is it's from a long line of sort of assumptions about um, what healthy sexual behavior means, what heteronormative, you know, what we should and shouldn't be into. And this is why I also talk about fetishes in the book, because I think there's a lot of... Oh, we'll get there. We'll get Sorry? there. We'll get, we'll get I said, there. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of pressures to, you know, live out your sexual life in a very specific way. And so as soon as you deviate from that, you're, you're, it's perceived to be bad. And so when you look at the research on, on porn, it basically, it, it's hard to not find articles that say porn is bad, even though I don't think, I mean, that can't be right, is basically what I, what I asked myself in the book, because basically everybody watches porn, and most people do not become, you know, sex offenders. Most people do not go down this dark and nefarious pathway and get more and more desensitized and suddenly require sort of this incredibly sensational porn to, or for that matter, you know, actual sex to, to match the porn. Wait, you really so think, I, yeah. 
You really think like right. that that many people what do you think you're talking like over 70 80 what number would you say of people that you encounter in your daily life like I mean what are you saying like what percentage do you think it really is it's really hard to get an accurate number for that because a lot of people are really cagey about things like porn uh, and getting good samples for that is really, really hard. And to be honest, I don't actually know what the current numbers are in different parts of the world. And I'm sure that they differ wildly. But if I were to guess, I would yeah. say for men, it's close to 80%. Holy, and for women, probably holy mother. Some sort of porn. Yeah, and then probably. what percentage would you say for women? Lower. So I, I guess it's closer to, to 20 or 30, but still a lot. And obviously, sometimes you might watch porn together. So, and this this includes manga, this includes you know animations, this includes all kinds of different things that we might consider sexually arousing. But it includes stories as well. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey was a bestseller. That's definitely a type of porn, just not in the way that we necessarily think about it intuitively. It has so many deep implications. To think, I don't know. I don't. I I can't even articulate why I think there's so many deep implications. But uh, but you think there's that big of a gender imbalance? Like, yes. I mean, eighty twenty is like that's dramatic. But I mean, the, the, the reason that, I mean, there definitely is a difference in genders. I, again, I'm, I'm guessing these yeah, numbers just, yeah. <laughs> but the reason is, I mean, frankly, because porn's made for guys, especially when we're talking about sort of filmed porn, 99% is from the male point of view for guys with, you know, story, storylines and positions and things that are specifically for the male gaze. And, for, and for guys? That being said, well, for heterosexual or for gay guys. Oh my god, I thought you meant like the, the number four. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. In some form, it's four men. Gotcha. Not okay. four, but four, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I gotcha. Okay. On that note, there is yeah. some good porn emerging for women, also visual porn, uh, including Erica Lust. Yeah. There's a really good uh, um, director who's called Erica Lust, so it's a female-directed whole series of porn which is exceptional if you're a woman and you want to look at some porn i have heard that there's porn for women <laughs> even the fact that you have to say that <laughs> makes it clear that the default for porn is men um <laughs> you're right you're right no i well i think there should be more porn that is enjoyable for as many people as possible there should not i definitely agree with that but look if you're a woman and you enjoy porn that you think is more for men they shouldn't be shamed either right no, of course not. Um, yeah. And women do watch porn for men, but I think one of the reasons it ex the, the gender difference is explained is because of the the audience that it's made for. That's not to say that porn doesn't have implications. Of course it does. Um, yeah, let's talk about the implications. Yeah. Yeah. So what research did find is that people who watch a lot of porn, especially okay. violent porn, that that does seem to desensitize. Basically, it does desensitize you a bit, and you need you do need more of it to. Okay get it off. And, but again, these are very specific samples and almost exclusively this research is done on men. So I actually don't think I came across a single study that effectively looked at the sort of downregulation or potential downregulation of sort of sex as a stimulus in women. Okay. So whether women need more and more <laughs> intense porn. That's interesting. So that's an open question. I think so. Let's get a grant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> porn for women. It's a great grant idea. Great, great study idea. Um, but I I'm, guess the take home message curious. here. I'm curious. I'm curious. Yeah. Is, well, and, and linking it back into evil. So some people assume that watching porn is evil in and of itself. Okay. Which I think it can be, frankly. So okay. depending on, you know, how it's sourced, depending on how it's filmed, depending on, depending on whether people are there voluntarily, um, you might be contributing to things like sexual slavery, um, which is something that, you know, is very difficult to regulate on the internet and to know where sort of your porn is coming from. Not impossible. This is where you can do, be an ethical consumer, just like in everything else. You can, you know, pick 
platforms that you know are more likely to. Wait, wait, hold on. So you're okay labeling certain behaviors as evil, just not people? Is that is that right? No, behaviors also I would not label oh, evil. Oh, okay, because you just labeled uh, sexual slavery evil. You said Did something. I? You said, well, it's some things that do contribute to evil, such as sexual slavery. Or do slavery. contribute to harm, yeah. yeah. Oh, harm, okay. Um, cool. So, so yeah, so sexual slavery is actually one of those topics that for me is the hardest to process, but that understood. We Under, yeah. yeah, rightfully so. I mean, there's some topics I don't know. 50% of the topics in your book, I had uh, trouble stomaching, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but that was sort of the point, right? Is it was the point. Up. It was the point. So, yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, so to finish up the porn conversation, basically, if you get stuck into really violent porn, it might make you slightly more likely to also want that offline. And it can have an impact on your brain. But overall, unless you're binging on this stuff, okay. probably you're going to be fine. And probably the stuff you watch on the internet is not going to correlate to stuff that you want to do offline. And you're almost certainly not going to become a sexual predator just because you watch things like BDSM online. Oh, well, now that's, that's a whole other topic, right? <laughs> BDSM. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, you, I mean, you write, you have a whole chapter about kink. Um, do you think that's something that's stigmatized in our society? Oh, totally. I, I think that the pictures that we have when we think of the kink community, when we think of people who are interested in things like BDSM or other kinds of fetishes. Um, now, this is focusing on fetishes between consenting adults, uh, which is separate from, mm. you know, other things. Or and that's a different chapter. And that's, that's a different, a different chapter. chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. But I mean, just like, I mean, even, even homosexual activities are still, you know, eroticized beyond what heterosexual activities are so like even just being queer even just being like two women in uh, let's go back to porn in a porn film is inherently going to it feels different feels fetishized immediately yeah but so so with bdsm i think the question there's there's lots of people i think wrestle with this themselves a lot so they a if given that huge amount so about 50 percent of people in surveys say that they have engaged in at least one bdsm related activity so it's spanking or handcuffing or sort of more specific stuff about sort of being dominant or submissive um and that's a, again this is why i think 50 shades of gray took off is because this is a fantasy that a lot of people have and people do engage in this behavior and so the question then becomes for themselves i think why am i interested in this so again this is sort of the joke I sometimes make is, you know, can I be a feminist and interested in BDSM? Yeah. Um, you raise and, and talk yeah. about that in the book. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And the juxtaposition between sort of how you feel about yourself and sort of your values and how the whole point and the reason why BDSM is so attractive isn't because you're into violence. Mm -hmm. It's because people want to hand over control and they don't want to have to think. And that makes it easier to enjoy the moment, if you will, or enjoy the sexual activity. So there was this study that you talk about from 2016 on deviant sexual interest in the general population. And you find there is decreasing interest as these different, this list you had. Now, I'm not going to go through this list and ask you to rank your uh, <laughs> numbers. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But um, uh, should I just read some so the, the audience sure. has an idea? But okay, the well, first thing is, number one, you're watching an unsuspecting stranger while they undress. So that one actually more than half, right, would find that somewhat arousing. Uh, by the way, this is a score from uh, very repulsive to ranging to very arousing. And so it turns out a lot of majority of people might find that arousing. Number two, you're touching a material like rubber, PVC, or leather. So people find that arousing, like a high proportion of people? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Hey, I look, I'm not judgmental. 
you're touching or rubbing a stranger who's not expecting it. That seems wrong. <laughs> no, no. But you're saying it a lot of people. <laughs> what do you say? Isn't that a crime? It's a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fraudulism is, is a crime, but it's the but, idea. Still, the yeah. idea it finds a lot of people find arousing. Well, that yeah. just doesn't that create a con, uh, quite a conflict? And I mean, are people? I find the sexual domain fascinating, and I had Justin Laymiller on the show talking about sexual fantasies and how most people don't actually enact their sexual fantasies or even would want to. Is the idea that because these things are wrong, like that's why it's a it's almost like a paradox of a sense. Like the second it wasn't wrong anymore, you know that we wouldn't want to do it or find it as arou- as arousing. I don't know. I'm just yeah, I mean, there's definitely an element of that. Uh, again, it, it's and so in the book, I explain that the research on this shows that it seems to be about rule breaking okay. um, and breaking out of norms. And what I mean, one of the biggest social norms is, you know, don't have sex with the people across me at all times. And so the sort of idea of like boundaries and, you know, inhibition, we're constantly inhibiting ourselves. And in the bedroom, that's just not as effective. And so by intentionally yeah. thinking thoughts that can help us break out of that sort of inhibition that stops us from having these these feelings and experiences otherwise. So these these statements seem to escalate quickly (laughs) (laughs) into like like rapey, if I may be honest, territory. Now, uh, okay, so you're being spanked, being or whipped by someone. That sounds like standard BDSM that can be very consensual. But the very next one is you're forcing someone into sexual activity. So I guess the less people find that is that's that's the point there. And then you are imagining yourself as someone of the opposite sex. So that's the less people find that arousing. I'm just going to stop there. I'm not going to even read, read the next one out loud. But okay, people. But isn't that a good teaser for your book, though? For people who are curious what the next one is that I would not read out loud because I don't think I could say it without my <laughs> face turning bright red. Um, turn by Julia's excellent book, and it's on page 133. Okay. <laughs> is that fair? Is that fair, Julia? And then figure out if you're kinky or if you're just average. <laughs> yes. Learned a weird shit. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, this gets, it escalates. Okay, cool. So this does segue into another taboo topic. Look, I figured like, if I'm going to talk to you, I might as well bring up all these topics, these taboo topics, because, or else what's the point of talking to you, right? Like, I mean, about your book, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, we could talk, this friends, it's not about that stuff. But anyway, whew, let me just take a breath. Let, <laughs> me, just, processing the let me just, let me just take, I'm like sweating. You can do this. You can do this. Okay. Let's Taboos do this. are hard to talk about. That's why, that's why it's so interesting to do so. That's why it's so hard to do so. Um, I mean, it's the, the, the line I sometimes use is that, you know, the hardest things to talk about are often the most important as well. And um, it doesn't make it any less hard. It doesn't make it any less gut-wrenching when you read, you know, parts of my book and go, oh, this makes me, makes me really uncomfortable. But it's still, I think it's really useful to face these sort of taboos, like right on and to look at, you know, this, how, do we, how do we understand them? This is the point of your book, and you make that so clear. And you, and in the conclusion, you restate that. And I really appreciate it. You said the, the point of facing these sides head on is also to maybe take a, a look at ourselves, right? Like kind of shine the mirror on. So I really appreciate that. But even with everything you just said, it's still not easy for me to then segue into rape fantasies. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, even then, it's still like, Okay, let's talk about rape fantasies. Okay, now you're saying that there's a high proportion of women who have rape fantasies, and and yeah. then you broke it down into different types. Do you mind talking a little bit about what that research shows? 
Yeah. So as most of the research in this book, I mean, I, I've sort of taken what I would consider sort of the best of, of other people's research and put it into a book to try and make a coherent narrative to try and explain a little piece of the human condition. So this isn't my research. It's research I'm, I've, I've found. And research on rape fantasies. This is something that I've wondered about a lot. So this plays into porn. Actually, back to that. This plays yeah. into sort of the It's all the connected. Maybe we're going to like discover this is all connected. We're going to have a new theory of evil <laughs> or, or of not evil, <laughs> of, of humanity. Yeah. Of humanity. Um, yeah, but we see, so we see, you know, rape scenarios in porn, for example. And the sort of this idea that it, it seems to turn a lot of people on to think about forced sex. And, but that doesn't make it any less disturbing. And so I think it's particularly curious that a lot of women seem to have rape fantasies. And A, most other women don't know that. And so people feel incredibly alone in this fantasy. They feel incredibly confused by the fact that they are turned on by this, again, picture in their heads of non-consensual sex. And so it can be quite an isolating experience. And it seems to affect or seems to happen to a huge proportion of women. And so the question is why? Why would women ever fantasize about being raped? And the answer goes back into the sort of BDSM stuff is almost certainly, so when you look at what those fantasies actually look like and who is forcing themselves on whom it's usually i mean obviously it's a hottie because it's my fantasy and so it's a hot person um it's someone who you know turns me on and who sorry, just forget that, and who is a huge proportion of rape fantasies are like that and they, they culminate and sort of you know finally they can express their true passion for I each see. other and then there's a sort of other piece of it, which is the darker stuff where people you know fantasize about being abducted or people breaking into their houses and doing That's things. dark shit it is dark shit, but it lives in your fantasy entirely. Mm. And again, this is where probably the reason that we have these even rape survivors, so even people who have been raped and their fantasies, unfortunately, do align more with what actual rape looks like. They're less likely to be the cute romantic kind oh. um, or cuter. So again, still rape, a fantasy, however. But but there it gets darker and people still have them is probably because of this handing over control. It's again this sort of being told what to do, being forced, if you will, into pleasure. Now so. so but in terms of the percentages of like the theme, so the most likely one is the first one you were kind of saying the mm-hmm. is that right? Is there like a general pattern like we're sussing here that like the darkest of the dark like is not as prominent as more of the lighter of the dark? Do you know what I mean? Like I don't know. What so, so, I mean, the, the, the most common ones are involving people who are not supposed to be with rather than sort of someone, again, breaking into your house and kidnapping you. Um, but it does it does get dark. And some people have a mixture. I mean, people have both. But this in no way means that people want this to happen to them. Right. This is this is really important piece of this. It's, it's really important. Like with lots of porn that we watch, we don't ever want to experience that. With these fantasies, we also don't ever want to experience them. They, they're, they're, they're created specifically in our fantasies, and that's where we want them to stay. Well, don't don't certain women though want uh, like they can like role play with a with a lover that in a consensual non consensual way. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like just yeah. like to try to live out those fantasies, but in a way they know they're ultimately safe. Right. But then it, and that's the difference of the, the fantasy often is that the fantasy is non-consensual, whereas, of course, you are consenting to role playing. Um, right. And usually you have, you have also, you know, removing consent and stopping the situation. And so you know that you're actually safe. And that, that is, of course, very, very different from actual rape or even what happens in these fantasies. Of course. We both agreed on that. <laughs> you were both agreed yeah. on that. Okay. Okay, I'm trying to like just I'm trying to like connect dots. Do you know what I mean? And 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 all because the, there's so much there's so much to talk about in your book. There's I mean you 
bring up so many quarters of, of human uh, – now I was going to say evil. I'm not going to say evil. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty, uh, not naughtiness doesn't feel like it captures it either though. <laughs> it's like <laughs> – I don't know what it is. It's harm? human harm. Okay. Let's go with harm. <laughs> yeah, let's go with human harm. Okay. So let's transfer now. Uh, let's uh, segue to pedophiles. Okay. So – the reason why I'm connecting these dots is because it seems like you're saying we should have a more like to have the thoughts, you know, the fantasies or the urge is not the same thing as being a pedophile. I think you were trying to make a point. You made a point in your book about humanizing pedophiles. Can you tell me more about the key distinction there that you wanted to tell our audience? So the biggest thing is that we need to humanize everybody. And so that includes everybody. And I think this is where people sometimes go, wow. oh, but, and they will exclude pedophiles or they exclude terrorists. Or Such exclude a whatever. good point. Such a good point. Cause I kind of just did that. <laughs> so no, it's a really good point. Okay. And so it's just making sure that we don't forget that, you know, we're all human beings. And so within that also taking the same approach. So again, looking at why people do certain things, why do we have certain fantasies? At what point do they become harmful to others or ourselves? And with, um, so the, the book I ended up, I, I didn't go in with the plan to write a whole chapter on pedophiles, but I did because there's such an incredible con connection between the public's uh, sort of perception of evil and so like it's almost synonymous in most people's minds and sort of i mean if you look at statistics in the uk for example about half of the population wants a death penalty back just for child sex offenders so i mean we we really do monsterize this particular group of people people think um, there's like a special place reserved in hell for right. pedophiles yeah yeah and in prisons they're treated worse than most other i mean it's like across the board it's considered sort of the worst kind of predilection. And in, in the book, what I wanted to go through, and the reason I separated this chapter from the other sex chapter, which is the one we were just talking about, where it talks about fetishes, it even talks about zoophiles, so people who are sexually interested in animals, because that's a different Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> you're different you're fast forwarding. <laughs> right and to I do the talk animals. a bit about LGBT issues. I talk about so oh my god, that's on my list too. World. Yeah, it's on Sorry. my list. It's on my list too. It's on my list too. <laughs> okay, we'll get to those. Um, but but all of those things are sort of related to each other. And okay. then there's sort of pedophilia, which is okay. related but different. And I also didn't want to make the classic mistake of putting into the same chapter on homosexuality anything about pedophilia because that is already unfortunately linked in people's minds and some people's minds as well. Anyway, so what I wanted to make as a point, and which is something that I have frankly always found, I've always struggled to understand why people find that someone who's a pedophile, that that is the ultimate evil, because who would choose to be that, frankly? Like, I, I have so much sort of, I feel so bad for people who, whose primary sexual interest in, is in a group of people who all of society agrees is completely innocent yeah. and off limits. And to have that be your main attraction, I mean, that must be a, an incredibly difficult way to live. I, I just, so, just to pause on that point a second. I yeah. agree with you. I, I agree. That I have thought thoughts such as that in my life. And, and I've had conversations with my friends, like when I do like gratitude, you know, positive psychology, we do gratitude exercises. Sometimes I'll just have like, like gratitude exercises, like, thank God, God didn't like make me a serial killer or like, but, and it sounds almost funny, but it's like, I really do think like that as well. Like, I'm like, I'm so grateful that I don't have certain urges because it would make that, like, it must be hard being a serial killer who doesn't want to kill. 
<laughs> or, or maybe a psychopath. Or a psychopath, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure you could be born a serial killer. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. That's um, true. I don't mean, I guess in order to earn the title serial killer, you have to have yes, serially correct. killed. I see. No, good yes. point. Good point. Okay. <laughs> but um, maybe you purges uh, or violence that you're suppressing, anger management issues. Um, so, yeah. yes, I, I see the point of sort of not having these. these Boy, I should have quit while I was ahead with that point. <laughs> but you see, but we're saying we're on the same page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, but it's people. People get so caught up in um, the the atrocity that is, you know, child sex spending, and then uh, this is what I also really wanted to set out in the book is that pedophilia and related philias. So ephebophilia, for example, is a primary sexual interest in teenagers. Uh, ephebophilia is a primary sexual interest in sort of in between, so 11 to 13. Um, and then what pedophiles, I mean, the, the term is specifically used to refer to people who are interested predominantly in people under the age of oh, wow. puberty, right? So the prepubescent. Wait, what's, what's like, isn't there like a thing for 14 to 17? Ephebophiles. So was Jeffrey Epstein technically uh, hebebebebebephile, whatever you just said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But everyone's calling him a pedophile in the news. Is that technically, yes, is, technically incorrect? That's technically incorrect. And I'd say the overwhelming majority of people we call pedophiles aren't. They are – they're not even necessarily a pedophile. So this is where it becomes uh, – there's even more nuance is that just because people sexually assault – uh, children or people under the age of consent in whatever country we live in, because that's also different in different countries. But it doesn't mean that we are predominantly interested in that category of people. And so this is where we need to divorce the idea of a sexual preference or a primary interest from behavior. So a lot, most pedophiles, so in, in polls that researchers have done, they found that about 2% of people, when given complete anonymity, confess that they've had some fantasies or have, would, would be interested in sexual activity with minors. Now, this doesn't surprise me at all, given the ranking of teenage porn or what is considered teenage porn or labeled teenage porn. Yeah. It's always like in the top three search Yeah, categories. I was so surprised. I read your book. You said 3% in, in England or something like that. I think it was 3% yeah. in England. I was like, what is up with those Brits? Yeah, but Germany had a similar percentage, and uh, as far as we, there's no reason to think it should be different anywhere else. Um, oh, well, wow, that's so, so interesting. You think some of it has to do with um, the sexualization of teens in pornography? You think that's a, a, a big... No, the other way around. I think oh. that the fact that people look for teen teenage porn suggests that a lot of people already have sort of, oh. not a preference necessarily, but they are interested in viewing material that well, depicts people who are very young. I wouldn't be surprised if we had like an evolutionary psychologist on here. You know what I mean? You know what they would say. They'd be like, well, that makes evolutionary sense. Yeah, because they yeah. can have babies and so go yeah. for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, which I mean, so many other issues with, but yeah. yes. Uh, but that being said, I mean, every, we can intuitively understand the difference between someone who's primarily interested in four-year-olds and someone who's primarily interested in 14-year-olds. Like, that seems like an obvious and important distinction, and yet we routinely fail to make it. And, you know, the, the diagnosis and the prognosis for these different kinds of categories of, of primary sexual interests are totally different. And you're much higher risk if you're actually a pedophile than if you're a febophile. Because basically, if you're interested in, or if you have a primary interest in, in teenagers, you could probably get away with adults who just look young. Um, and so there are ways to manifest, there are ways to live that out without ever having to go into underage territory. And so this is the other, the, the final piece of this is that just that most people who have a primary sexual interest in children never live that out. They basically suffer in silence, if you will, and they don't actually 
as far as we know, engage in any sexual harm towards towards minors. And some people who do engage in sexual activity and exploit minors have no primary interest in, in young people. They're just easy targets. Mm. So this is the other piece, is that sometimes you're just, you know, a bad person, if you will, or someone who's making very bad sexual decisions and engaging in crimes, and you're targeting vulnerable people, and vulnerable people are disproportionately going to be younger. Wait, so right? there are, so you think there are bad people then? <laughs> you, knew, you, knew, you knew I was not going to let that slide. You knew I wasn't going to let that slide. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, like the so in, in the UK, for example, there has been some inquiries into child sexual abuse in children's homes. Australia has had a similar thing, um, and there's basically there's this, these records of hundreds of thousands of children being abused in children's homes. And with that, there might be some of the people who are abusing these children who are pedophiles, but some of them are also just opportunists. And again, they're more likely to be able to exploit these particular individuals because they have power over them. I just wanted to make sure that we have a real conversation about, you know, what is pedophilia? What does yeah. it actually mean? Do people actually engage? Who is, who is a child sex offender? Yeah. How do we, and, and, and ultimately where we should be going with it is, you know, risk management. Because dehumanizing people who have always been there and will always be there, there will always be pedophiles in our societies. We can't just wish them away. And, you know, there are brothers and our dads and our moms and our sisters. Like, they're not someone over somewhere. They're, they're, they're real people. And we need to, you know, give them a way to, to live their life in a way that doesn't involve offending. And we're not doing that very well right now, if at all. In other words... We need so, treatment options and helplines and other ways in which other, basically where people can seek help if they have inappropriate because, sexual offense. Because if we, I'm processing, I'm processing. So that's why I'm like, my eyes are like, it, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just, I like to think deeply about things, especially sensitive topics. Okay. So yeah. So your argument is like, if we have more, dare I say, compassion for some of these individuals and we help them, I mean, we're also helping the world because we're, I mean, we're lowering, there are better ways. Another way of putting that is there are better ways of lowering the incidences rate than how we currently treat them. Like there are other things that we could do. And perhaps, you know, helping them non-judgmentally find other outlets would ultimately reduce the incidence rates and help the world. Is this along the lines of the spirit of what you're saying? Yeah, I think right now we pretend that the people we love and know can't be pedophiles, that pedophiles are evil monsters hiding away somewhere in a basement. And that they come and predate on right. our children, even the most, I mean, statistically, the most likely person to sexually assault your child is your, if you have a brother, a male, a male relative. Huh. So like, it, that, is, that is hands down the most likely person to sexually assault your child. Like, not strangers in dark corners. Um, and so I think that the, the biggest thing there is, yeah, it's c compassion, sure. Um, but also just, I think right now, we as adults are putting children at risk because we're too scared to talk about these really important issues. And that's just not good enough. And we're failing and putting a huge amount of people at risk because punishing people after the fact, that's not going to cut it. We need to prevent it. You have so much compassion, like, you know, like universal compassion. Where did you get that from? Uh, did, did you like, when you were growing up in like elementary school or whatever, did you like volunteer for organizations? Like, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> the human rights activists. Yeah, yeah. Were you, I mean, you had, you're, uh, bur you're bursting with this. It's, it's a wonderful character trait of yours. I'm saying this in a very positive way, of course. You meet a lot of people who have the ew factor, as you talk about in the book, immediately. They mm. won't even like talk about this kind of stuff or even right. entertain that I'll have any compassion for some, mm. you somehow overrode that. Was that a process? Is that a fair question? Like, was it a process? Is it something you always have had? I don't know. 
So it's what you're expressing is what I call empathy shaming uh, or curiosity shaming even. So like even just the idea that you're thinking about why someone might be doing these bad things also implicates you as like sort of the, the, the sort of situation at the family dinner table bringing up, you know, I wonder why people become pedophiles. Everyone sort of shuts down and goes, what are you saying? You know, are you a pedophile? And immediately you're shamed out of it. You're not even allowed to pursue the sort of thought of, you know, why someone might end up the way that they I do. I hope you don't think I'm empathy shaming you at all. No, no, no. Oh, not good. Oh, good. I'm um, not. I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, but I think we need to be very careful not to do that. And I think a lot of people do that. And, and we all feel righteous in who we shame people about. So this is also where... I think sometimes sort of being left and being sort of liberal and academic, there's this idea of, you know, oh, no, no, we don't shame people for, for thinking, you know, different things or for, we don't shame offenders, for example, but who do we choose to shame instead? I mean, we shame Republicans, potentially we shame, you know, it's okay to ridicule people who think differently than us in, in political ways or who, yeah. uh, or who are racist. Like this is the other thing, like to dehumanize racists, like that's, it's still dehumanizing people. We need to be very careful not to do that in terms of where I got it from. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm an alien visiting the planet because I, I do just sort of look down and want to understand. I don't know. I take an interest in why people think and do the things they do. And I, I don't have the sort of, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I know. I know. Like we both, we we have, we both have, a, we share a ravenous curiosity. You actually had a cool phrase. You said something like curiosity shaming as well was another thing, yeah. and I, I really resonated with that. I really resonated with that because I, this is why I do this podcast is I am so curious about everything and I don't want to like, I can only talk about this topic or that. Like I'm no, I want to know, you know Um, it doesn't, you know? um, So no, I, I get it. I do get it. It's just, it's just, it's rare. It's quite, quite frankly, it's rare um, because people have that ooh factor um, as you talk about. Um, So speaking of the ooh factor, let's talk about uh, bestiality. Uh, why not um uh so um i'm gonna ask a question that's gonna like as soon as i ask this question people uh, half of my audience is gonna be like ew (laughs) so but i'm gonna just do it what do we know what the research shows and why some animals are prettier than others (laughs) because you talk about that in your book what makes an animal pretty (laughs) i don't i don't know (laughs) (laughs) um what makes animals sexy even right um so i mean it is it is a question so looking at the research all my people are pulling their advertising right now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's always a risk when you hang out with me (laughs) endorsements gone um the animal rights people no we're no longer supporting this podcast (laughs) well i mean in some ways these people would identify probably as animal rights people yeah because they love love animals romantically love animals yeah. uh, to the point that they consider them their partners um so they certainly don't want harm to come to them at least in their minds now uh, research on bestiality or zoophilia so having a primary sexual interest in animals uh, has not been researched extensively but there has been a bit of research on it now in terms of how you get into circles like this shocked frankly that uh, a zoophile community has let researchers in but they have i'm shocked and it's, I mean, even it, you, I mean, you can find these individuals who are interested in this kind of thing, of course, online, on message boards, there's communities, um, but to actually show up. So this is what researchers did is they actually showed up in this barn, basically. And uh, we're, it's, always out, the barn. Just, it's always a barn. It's always a barn. 
<laughs> well, they got to go where the animals are. Um, and so what, what they found was that basically people gave the same reasons as to why animals are sexy as why humans are sexy. And they'll say things like it was her eyes or the way she looked at me. It was, you know, the way that he... Uh, his personality is what's so attractive. And this is what, it, there does seem to be this massive overlap between the reasons we fall in love with humans and the reasons that a very small minority, but some people say that they fall in love with animals. And what zoophiles generally say is that unlike humans, animals, there's sort of this feeling at least of unconditional love or this feeling that they don't have some of the complications that come along with humans. Now, they also don't have the ability to give consent, which is an important problem. Isn't that important? Uh, I was thinking that about that when I read your book. Yeah, and there there have been, uh, and there still are, I'm sure, in the world, uh, animal brothels. So Get out of this, here. Yeah, I, this is something I don't think I got into in the book no. because there's actually no academic research on it. There's are you just serious? Of, like a barnyard of <laughs> – this is uh, – what you is say it's serious, but I mean, I, I've had friends come back from Mexico and they'll talk about the donkey shows. I mean, if that's how zoophilia, then I don't know, or certainly bestiality, then, then wait, you know, so I don't know what it am is. I being, wait, so if I like make fun of that, am, am I actually, am I like being a bad person? Am I shaming someone's preference? Like, should, should I really examine my sense of morality that I have? Is that, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Is that what um, you're saying? You, you are ashamed. I mean, it's kind of like making jokes about dropping the soap in prisons, which is basically making jokes about people getting raped in prisons. Which I um, would not do. I would not make good, a joke about that. Good. But the idea of a animal brothel, it's like comedy too, though. Like if you were a comedian, that would not be off limits for the comedian, <laughs> to be honest. Like, and, yeah. and the question is, and the, and the reason I find animal brothels fascinating is, so there, ha there were some in Europe until recently. They got closed down only a couple of years ago. Um, and the reason they could exist, the reason that they weren't considered animal abuse, which is a fascinating ethical and legal oh problem. Gosh. They got raided? <laughs> So it, well, it wasn't, so it wasn't because of a lack of clientele that they closed down. It was because of other issues. Um, but what, what happened, the reason they could exist at all is because the way that they structured it mostly, allegedly at least, was that the animals would mount you. So the idea was that you're not raping the animal because the animal is the one who's in, choosing to engage in sexual activity with you. Does that make sense? So you present... And then the animal decides whether or not to engage. And so that was the way that they, they got around this idea of consent and animal abuse. Super sketchy still in terms of so, legality of consent, but um, I yeah. thought it was an interesting way of trying to get around that. It's very interesting. I have to say I'm feeling a little bit of the ooh factor that you talked about <laughs> in your book. I wanted to be transparent about that. I'm feeling a little nauseous. You have gone a bit pale. <laughs> like you were getting hot and flustered before, and now you're getting pale. <laughs> this is wow. A tough conversation for you. <laughs> wow. Now, do you think you can be – can you study this and talk about it so much that you you become desensitized to some of this stuff? Do you do you think that's possible? Like – um, like, like talking about like murderers and, you know, the other topics in the book, um, you know, there's certainly, there are certain topics like in reading your book, I felt as though the chapter on sex slavery hit you. Like there was a different tone to that mm. chapter. If I may be honest and just my perception of the book, it's like the rest of it, the book sort of had a very non-judgmental tone, like a very like, you know, what's so evil about having sex with a turtle? But then, <laughs> but then, you know, it might be hard with the shell, but, but they're animals too, just like us. But then I just got to that chapter and 
it was like, I almost felt like there was a line in the tone of your writing. And I'm just wondering, like, just speaking you as a human, like, do you feel like some topics, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm saying. I don't really know. I just am saying an observation of when I read, when I read that chapter, there was, it felt like there was a lot, there was a little more judgment about people who sell people into slavery. Like, like even you're like, WTF. Now, like, I felt like if I said WTF about the donkey sex, like you'd be like, Scott, don't shame. Don't shame the, do- the donkey, the donkey lovers. But, 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 but it almost feels warranted to say WTF about people who sell people in slavery. Like I'm WTF about it. Rightly so. I feel like it's WTF. But anyway, what do you think about everything I just said? Because I don't really even know what I'm saying, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. I think that, I mean, definitely the section on sexual slavery and slavery in general was one of the hardest for me to write. Like even reading the statistics, I mean, there is yeah. a shocking amount of slavery still happening in the world. I was shocked. There is a shock. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, uh, the numbers are astonishing, the amounts of sexual slavery. It's all just like awful, frankly. And so the fact that this happens and the reasons, and I think this is where my empathy does drift, is that the reasons why people do things like sell people into slavery are entirely profit-based. And that's what I think in some ways it has less of an excuse, frankly. Like there are other ways to make, it's hard, like if you, and of course there's options for all of these kinds of bad behaviors I talk about in the book, but having systems that also then over, you know, over huge groups of people have this amount of devastating impact, that's sort of levels of selfishness compounded Mm -hmm. that are unfortunately facilitated by the way that our economies are structured. They're facilitated by the values that were given by, you know, things like capitalism. And so it's not that people emerge out of nowhere and suddenly, you know, want to sell slaves. They come out of a society and they're, you know, they have their brains and some of them might be psychopaths, some of them aren't, but I mean, it's, so they're not in isolation. They're not, if you will, hundred percent to blame, but it does feel like they're more to blame perhaps than for some other kinds of activities I talk about in the book. Yeah. And it's also harder to, thank you for making that point in such a, uh, in the way that only Dr. Julia Shaw could make it. I just thinking like, there are other examples in the book where you certainly bring up like the hypocrisies of us. In mm. that chapter, I think that that was missing. So it's almost like, no, these people are legit evil. No, but you didn't, I, I know you didn't say that, but I'm saying like, well, at least like in other chapters, for instance, like in the, in the, in the bestiality one, you made a great point. Look, you've got me think. actually, you've really got me thinking about whether or not I want to be a vegetarian. Uh, no, that's and I'm from the other chapters. Sorry, not what? from the bestiality. What do you say? What do you say? The bestiality yeah, chapter, yeah. maybe if you want to be a vegetarian. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm serious. So much. Well, no, well, no, I don't love them in that way, but um, <laughs> but you made some good analytical points, right? So if even though I wanted to throw up, you made me like think, like, huh? I like want to throw up thinking about so like a person having a loving sexual encounter with a donkey, you know, caressing their donkey tail or whatever. And I get sick of that thought, but then I'll be like, oh, that's disgusting. But then I'll go in my freezer and eat a cow. Now, yeah. what's worse? I've never thought of that before because, the, I mean, that, that, just, that spot thought never spontaneously entered my head. So you made me go down some pathways of thinking, which I think was your goal in writing that book. But you're right. I mean, you're not wrong, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, we are hypocrites in a lot of ways. 
We are. Uh, and, and I mean, the reason, so in the book, I, I talked about predictability earlier, and I, I hate a predictable book. So I hate it when you know exactly what the next topic is to be, exactly where it's going to go. And so part of the reason I, I liked writing this is that I could go so broad. So I could go and, and link things that seem completely disparate. So link, you know, terrorism with, you know, cute aggression with, you know, indirectly, but still like they're all there. They're all somehow connected. And um, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, the oof factor and eating animals and hypocrisy, I think we need to be careful on the one hand, because I think calling people hypocrites has, especially recently with people like Greta Thunberg, 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 um, she, I mean, You're right. people are using this sort of examples of, oh, you know, she sails across the world instead of flying, but then she eats something wrapped in plastic. What a hypocrite. That's not how it works. I mean, that's weaponizing this idea of hypocrisy as if it's not something that every single human being does, which we do. The point is that we minimize our hypocrisies and that we, again, live more in line with our morality and that, you know, ultimately shaming people for doing things that are obviously good for everybody is entirely out of a, I think, a realization, even if it's a deep, dark, lurking one that we don't explicitly understand, that that's obviously the right thing to do. And we should be doing that, too. I mean, this is how I feel about veganism. Obviously, we should all be vegan for so many reasons. And the fact that we shame vegans is because ultimately we know they're right. And we feel bad that we haven't made that decision. And so we double yeah. down and we say, like, you know, it's part of my culture and I have to. And no, you don't. And so I think that this is where a lot of hypocrisies no. come. We double down on things and then we just don't change our behaviors. And we should. You're right. I mean, I was eating beef today for lunch and reading your book and I... I had this moment I never had in my life where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm eating a cow. <laughs> like I'm eating an, a, a thing that was al was alive. I felt horrible. I felt like I wanted to apologize to someone. Um, <laughs> it's just, I know I, I, your book has really, has really profoundly influenced me. So I want to thank you. There's a point you, you made about how just the culture and environment can really influence how we normalize some of these things or how we escalate some of these things. You used rape culture as an example. So first of all, do you, th you think rape culture is a thing? Do you think it's a thing? And how uh, does that contribute to evil? So a couple of pieces to this. So the first one is that I specifically wrote about rape culture in the chapter on systems. So it's actually in the chapter called Snakes and Suits, which is more about sort of structures and culture and how systems fail and lead to harm. And so, I mean, that's, and that includes things like, you know, your psychopathic boss, but it also includes things like, you know, why did Volks, the Volkswagen scandal happen? You know, how do we, how do we have the sort of corruption on multiple levels or, or concealment of information when people know at multiple levels that, you know, that company is causing tremendous harm to the world. And so, you know, how do you get there? And so within that chapter, I think was the best space for it because actually rape even, it has a little bit to do with sex, but it has a lot more to do with power. And I mean, this is almost a tired saying at this point, but it, I think it's true. I mean, if you, there, there are avenues to sexual enjoyment and to, mm. to release, if you will, that have nothing to do with rape. But unfortunately, there is still a huge amount of rape that happens in the world. And so the question is why? And why is it predominantly men who do it? Because it's almost exclusively men. Of course, there are females who rape, but it is so disproportionately a male thing that. It really leads us to, it should lead us to wonder why. And I think it's because culture set men up to fail, frankly. Um, so the way that we're raising our boys, the way that we are 
I mean, it's starting to change, but I mean, this idea of sort of macho culture, this idea of, you know, concealing our emotions, this idea of, you know, not building up your empathy of not, you know, learning how to be a respectful human being, basically, I think that that a lot of boys fall through the cracks because they're not learning some of the skills that maybe women are. And so in the end, they also don't have the same decision-making ability when they're adults. And so they make really bad decisions when it comes to things like sexual encounters and they end up committing crimes and, you know, destroying other people's lives. And so, and it's not to excuse, it's not to say that sort of people who, who rape are, you know, that they're not at fault. Of course they are, but they are also the product of a system and that system is completely failing them. Yeah, you talk about the difference between lads magazines and the way they talk about women and the actual thing that came out of a rapist's mouth, a real rapist. And you said that some of these lads magazines are even worse. Yeah, so I mean, it was a, it was a fun study in terms of showcasing the sort of rape culture and how we perpetuate myths about what it means to sort of court a woman or, you know, this idea also, this really devastating idea that, you know, women don't want sex. So you need to sort of coax them into it, coerce them into it. Uh, and this idea that men always want sex. And so this is also where we get into, we do, we do. <laughs> but we get into sort of places around the world where it's the point where, you know, women, the reason why women are told to, to conceal their body parts is, you know, because otherwise, you know, they, the wiles of men will get out of control and they're going to rape mm. you. So it's complete victim blaming, this idea that, you know, men's desires are just completely out of their control and women's desires need to be pulled out. Um, and this leads to all kinds of problems. But with the study, what they did is they just took actual quotes from men's magazines and actual quotes from rapists. And they asked just really simple study, ask people to guess which is which. And people were no better than chance at guessing whether it was a rapist who said it or an, a piece of writing in a, in a lads mag. Mm. And I think that's the kind of thing that they actually replicated the study more recently and found that people were better. Basically, lads mags had gotten better and were less likely to perpetuate rape myths, but that there was still a problem. Um, but it just shows that, you know, the statements we make in everyday life that has nothing to do with actual sexual assault can still feed into a culture and beliefs about what sex means mm. that can facilitate a culture where rape happens. Uh, point, point taken. Uh, so this is the question you then asked, are those who sexually assault evil? I mean, nobody's evil. So I think no. Um, By this point, but, we should know your answer to that question. Yeah. Are they bad? <laughs> are they bad? Uh, again, that probably isn't, it's just not enough of a, an explanation. Are they but hurtful? I think that's, are they what? Hurtful? Yes, certainly. They certainly cause great harm. Yeah. Um, and and it's definitely something we need to, it's, I mean, there's so much broken around um, also convicting and dealing with rape post-talk. So even if people come forward, I mean, there's still this idea of people not being believed, mm. um, which is hugely problematic because... You know, it happens all the time and we need to deal with it better, both in terms of preventing it and in terms of dealing with it after the fact. And right now we're really quite bad at it. We're failing. Well, what can we do? You you argue better sexual socialization is one yeah. key? Yeah, better sexual socialization. I think that, you know, teaching boys that emotions are good and that, you know, having respect for each other and empathy are, are good things, that they're not weaknesses. Um, that I think even to the point where, you know, pushing boys into violent sports and pushing girls into, you know, soft, you know, dollhouses, I think there already we're seeing these, you know, we're already pushing people in very different directions. And if you're going to do that, you want to at least balance that out with sort of conversations you have at home, with books, with, again, empathy exercises to try and make sure that, you know, little boys and little girls, that everybody is getting a, a, a better, more well-rounded socialization. 
Yeah, and um, and this is within the context of compliance, the psychology of compliance. So we should learn not to be compliant to things that we know in our gut to be wrong, or you know, just because someone tells us you know to do something, like if we're in a fraternity, if we're in a sorority, and someone tells us to do something, right? Whatever. Yeah, and, and understanding what power means. I think this is another thing is that uh, I think when we see things like sexual harassment scandals and, and companies where sort of people go, well, you know, I didn't feel powerful. I, you know, I'm not the one with the power, you know, says the CEO of a company. Mm. Um, just because you don't feel powerful doesn't mean you are, aren't. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's, I think, teaching people at what point you are, at what point someone else is more vulnerable than you and you should put in extra safeguards to make sure that someone is, for example, consenting and that they're able to remove consent without negative repercussions in other ways, like getting fired or like having, you know, uh, just other things that you like a green card. I mean, the classic one for me is sort of people who are migrant workers and who come to, for example, the United States and uh, they're entirely reliant on their job to, to even stay in the country. Mm. I mean, they have a massive underreporting issue because people can harass and discriminate against them. And basically they've got nothing because if they speak up and they're retaliated against, they're kicked out of the country. And so people are able to abuse their power and they might not even know what's happening. Um, again, not to let, let them off the hook, but you need to just be much more conscious of all the different contexts and, and sort of, especially workplace environments, but also other environments where you have power and someone doesn't. Julia, I can tell that this particular topic is most emotionally resonant with you. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's very interesting to to watch, you know, the, the different topics like that one. Uh, I feel like um, you know strikes a particular chord. Um, so let's conclude. Let's let's wrap up. And um, you know, you make the excellent point about how you say, I firmly believe there's no person, no group, no behavior, no thing that is objectively evil. Perhaps evil only really really exists in our fears. But you also talk about there may be a bright side to the dark side. What, can we end? Can we end on that topic? <laughs> what are some of the potential bright sides? <laughs> let's let's put a positive one. spin on everything. <laughs> uh, so I mean, again, like none of these issues are inherently. I mean, I the consequences of some of these issues can be horrible, um, but the actual behavior, it's all part of being human ultimately. So, I mean, it's like having a predisposition to do harm, which all of us have, and some of us have a bit more and some of us have less, but all of us have the ability to hurt other people, um, is part of what makes us human. I mean, it's just like we have the ability to do good. It's just like we have the ability to do lots of things. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's something that we just need to understand better, I think. And what it seems to be correlated with, with deviance, for example, is that deviance also seems to be correlated with things like creativity. And so being able to think out Outside the box. I love that seems, topic. Yeah, um, is is true both for breaking the rules like laws and breaking the rules in terms of other things. So like you know painting things that no one's ever painted before, or thinking thoughts, or you know academic research coming up with the next Nobel winning Nobel Prize winning idea. I mean that's thinking outside the box. It's pushing a boundary beyond where it's been pushed before. And so that that's those skills are related. And so we shouldn't devalue the fact that we are able to think deviant thoughts to have fantasies the same thing with rape or murder fantasies like whether we're being victimized or we're the perpetrator the ability to go through these exercises in our brains is a tremendous gift which makes us able to make much better decisions in real life and is probably one of the key features that differentiates us from other other kinds of animals and other kinds of creatures who probably don't have that ability so i think that ultimately there there is this beauty in our ability to be bad but what it comes with is, I think, a responsibility that we understand we're able to be bad. And so we 
also have to understand that every single decision we make, we are the ones in charge of whether we make what we might consider the right decision or the wrong one. Every single time you buy, you know, a sandwich, do you buy the meat one or the vegan one? Every single time. And it's not about all the way through being totally consistent. It's about recognizing that every decision you make, you have potentially positive impact or negative impact. And, you know, ideally we're all picking more positive impact paths. Are you vegan personally? I'm not. Um, I used to call myself a closet vegan, so I'm mostly vegan at home. Uh, but I, I are you vegetarian? Sorry. Are you vegetarian? I'm not. I just eat a lot of plant-based meals. So I'm probably about, I'd say I'm probably 80% vegan. A lot of what kind of meals? Pot-based? Plant-based. Oh, is it pot-based? Pot-based. That'd be fun, but no. I'm not in a country that allows that. Uh, This is what I hear. This is what I, this is not, not what I, this is what I heard. Um, and then, you know, also with the positive side of the dark side, you talk about the uh, Zimbardo's notion of the heroic imagination. You talk about how, you know, we can, we can use our dark side for, e- for, for he- to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Break, again, breaking out of the norm, right? Yeah. So doing something that maybe the group isn't willing to or chooses not to do. So jumping, you know, the sort of dramatic cliche example of, you know, jumping into a, uh, a lake to save a drowning person. Um, where most people wouldn't be willing to do that. That is also being deviant. It's also breaking out of um, what most people do in a, in a positive way. I mean, it's the same with people who work for human rights or who you know campaign for for positive change in the world. Yeah. Um, they're they're going outside out of their way to help other people, and that's what deviance allows us to do. Well, Julia, Dr. Julia Shaw, I, I have really enjoyed this conversation immensely. It, it's been really thought provoking. I love how you. Do walk the talk. I've I've followed you on Twitter, and you argue for all sorts of rights. You argue for prisoner rights, right? Um, mm-hmm. You argue for LBTGQT. Your list is the longest list I've ever seen of those things. <laughs> By the way, in your book, it was like fifty alphabets. Uh, but um, uh, you've you've come out as bisexual and have owned it. You said fucking visibility in your book is what you said. So look, you really do walk the talk and. And I really consider it an honor to talk to you today about topics that no one talks about and in a way that I feel like you're coming from a good place with it. You don't come across to me as a psychopath who enjoys talking about these topics in, in a mean-spirited. Do you know what I mean? Like there seems to be an underlying humanitarian mission here. So thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to The Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts The Black Effect presents Family Therapy and I'm your host Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner David David he is a leader he just don't want to leave me But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 